it goes on. Uh, we all know uh, the 30th is Memorial Day. And tomorrow is Memorial Day observed. Anybody have any idea what today is? Armistice Day is the 11th of November. Today's Pentecost. This is Pentecost Sunday. Happy birthday, folks. Uh, pleased to see you here. Uh, we're in 1 Timothy this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 this morning. I thought I'd get a little bit further, but uh, this is as far as I'm going to get. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Paul's advice to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Uh, see, starting today and going into next week, we're seeing Paul give some very last, very personal charges to Timothy before he's going to close this letter. And remember, when we kicked off this, Paul's expecting to come visit Timothy right after this letter is delivered. We talked about that at the beginning of the study. There's no evidence that that ever happened. Uh, it looks like he wrote 2 Timothy without ever having to come see Timothy in between times. God changed plans. We don't know what happens. But Paul's writing this last bit of advice, expecting to see Timothy. And we're going to look at some very good advice for any one of us in ministry as we look at these last closing words from Paul. So let's look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Hopefully we've all found it by now. Uh, I'm going to read verses 11 and 12, and we're going to pray and then look at it. It goes like this. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the remembrance that we can have of this Pentecost Sunday. when you decided to bring out a new thing that nobody could have even imagined. Taking out all nations, kindreds, and tongues and making one body. We thank you for that unity that we have all over the world. Help us to keep that in mind as we look at your word. Guide us through your word this morning. Show us what you'd have for us and help us to change to be more like you. That's ever our prayer. We ask it in your name. Amen. So as I say, today we're looking at, we're kicking off. The rest of the book is going to be Paul giving some very personal advice. This week and next, we're really going to see real powerful commands that Paul's giving. And so verse 11 starts right off with a uh, very important word that we tend to skip over. What is, somebody uh, lay it on me. What does verse uh, 11 start right off with? First word. But. Very good. What does but tell us? When we're looking at just simple English lesson here, what does but mean? Exactly. We're going to make a change in the discussion that we've had so far. We've said something so far, but. Now we're going to make a, a change in our discussion. Another uh, word, but not quite such an uh, obvious transition, is the next word. 
The next word's thou. But thou. So the reason I call this a transition word is because up to this point, Paul has not made too many commands direct to Timothy and his personal spiritual life. He's given advice to Timothy on how he ought to oversee the church, things he ought to look for, things he ought to help instruct, things he ought to teach. And we've looked at false teachers recently, and now Paul says that we've already talked about false teachers, but you, Timothy, you are going to do something different. You do something different. Uh, as I say, we've, most of this book, and this book is famous for the advice on how to oversee the church, how to oversee leadership. That's basically the only t- reason anybody ever turns to 1 Timothy and Titus is to see what, is, what are the qualifications for church leadership. That's what they look for. That's the only reason anybody ever goes there. Uh, but now Paul's going to tell Timothy how to behave on a very personal level. This is what your life ought to look like, Timothy. Another kind of interesting phrase is that Paul calls Timothy a man of God. Did you notice that? But thou, O man of God. So that's another contrast. We've been looking at false teachers. Timothy, you're a man of God. You're different. But Timothy, you, Timothy, are something other. You're a man of God. And I think it's worth paying attention to that phrase, man of God, because this is the only time that it's used in the whole New Testament. Now, I looked through a lot of commentaries when I was coming up with this. Not one single commentary that I looked at pointed that fact out. You would think that when this is one time when a phrase is used that that's worth making note of. I'm going to make note of it now. If anybody wants to uh, profiteer off of that, go ahead and write a commentary and include that. I'm giving it to you for free. Go ahead and work with it. Uh, He's pointing out, Timothy, you're a man of God. Now, again, this is the only time that expression is used in the whole New Testament. So let's think about it for a minute. If Paul's using such a very specific phrase here, it's for a reason, wouldn't you say? See, he's using dramatic language for one thing. He's trying to make sure that this instruction is remembered. And he wants to make sure that this last instruction that Paul's giving is going to make an impression on Timothy's mind. So he's calling up familiar, this is a familiar phrase, it's used a lot, it's used all kinds of times in the Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament. In fact, it's used at least 60 times that I could figure out in the Greek Old Testament. So it's over and over and over and over again. It's used to describe uh, Moses. It's used to describe Shania, Elijah, Elisha, David. All these people are called man of God. So Paul, in referring to this, is saying, Timothy, you're joining these ranks. You're similar. He's, he's trying to inspire. He's using Old Testament type language to inspire Timothy of the significance of the role that he has, you see. Moses was a leader of God's people through the wilderness to the promised land. David 
was a leader of God's people as the first king, or the first real godly king, God's choice of king of the nation of Israel. Elijah was a man of God leading the people of Israel in a time of great darkness, spiritual darkness. Elisha, same thing. And Timothy, you're following in that grand tradition. And you know what? You guys are too. Hopefully I am too. So what I ought to point out, and I think I will point it out uh, since I bring it up, Paul's in no way indicating that Timothy, he sees Timothy as another Moses or anything like that, or an Elijah or a David, but rather he's trying to show Timothy the role and position which he has is the same kind of job, the same sort of tradition, by which God's chosen all kinds of teachers of his in centuries past. God chose Moses. Moses was going to school to be the next Pharaoh, he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was going to be, he was in line to be the next Pharaoh. God chose him out of that. Elijah was just a farmhand. He lived in Tishbe in Israel. It was a hillbilly redneck town. He was, he was going to be a farmhand growing up. He wasn't going to be anything special. And you and I know Elijah as the prophet of God in dark times. David was a shepherd boy. God chose him from the fields to be the king of Israel. And you know what, Timothy? You may be a nobody born to half-Jewish, half-Greek family, but you're a man of God. You're chosen by God to do a task. You know what? I'm from Sullivan, New Hampshire, but I believe I've been chosen by God to do what I'm doing right now. And you guys are all chosen to do whatever it is that you're called to do as well. Just like Timothy, you see. That's a grand tradition of God. You know what? The fact is, I can't do anything without God empowering me to do it anyway. I can't choose to follow him unless he chooses me in the first place. But I'm getting off topic a little bit. See... We've already seen Timothy being addressed as a leader whose life ought to serve as an example to all believers. We've talked about that. I'm not going to do that anymore. And there is some sense in which we all ought to be encouraged by that. Uh, see, let's think back to what we were talking about last time and the time before that. Uh, true ministry... Paul's talking to Timothy about what true ministry should look like. It shouldn't be motivated by greed. We've seen the false teachers are motivated by greed. They're not content. That's what we talked about last week was contentment. Uh, but true ministry ought to be guided by the reality of eternal life and an awareness of our own accountability before God. I'm one day going to have to answer to God for a life lived. Was my life wasted? Or was I doing the right thing? And if I allow that consciousness to guide me, then I will be determined to be found doing the right thing. And that's what ought to guide our ministry, a consciousness that we are one day going to be accountable to God. 
So as we look at today's verses, 11 and 12, we can't help but notice that they're packed with commands. There's command after command after command all through this. And the first of the commands is to flee these things. Now, obviously, he's referring to all the things which we've looked at for the last several weeks, the things that the false teachers are known for, uh, chasing after greed, uh, money, uh, being led down foolish temptations, uh, things of that nature, all these things that were destitute of the truth. Flee these things, Paul says. The Greek word for flee here is fuego. Fuego. It's used only three other times. Uh, probably the most famous use is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 where uh, Paul advises Timothy to flee also youthful lusts. Uh, did you know that in ministry there are certain things that we ought to engage, confront, and do battle with? And there are things that we ought to flee from? It's all right to run away. Sometimes we ought to run away from certain things. See, the false godliness of uh, prosperity gospel preaching and the love of money which we've just looked at for the last couple of weeks are two, two shining examples of things we ought to flee from. We hadn't ought to be doing battle with prosperity preachers. We hadn't ought to be doing battle with the love of money in this world. Flee from that. There's plenty of people who stand there they think that we ought to be preaching against it. I don't need to preach against it. I need to run away from it. Don't try to fight it. Because at best you're wasting your time. And at worst you're going to be destroyed by it. And then notice right after the command to flee. Be, oh, but thou, O man of God, flee these things. We get another command. And follow after. Blah, 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 blah. We'll go through them all. The next command is to follow after. So first Paul gives the negative. Flee. Do not do these things. Flee from them. And now he gives the positive. Here's what you ought to do instead. And I've got to remind you, since we're talking about it, we get, a, uh, we get a, uh, a negative, we get a positive. You know there's no such thing as neutral in Christian walk. I'm thinking in terms of electricity. You get a positive, you get a negative, you get a neutral. Uh, that's, but it, it works with car transmissions. It works with pretty much any other guy thing, too, if you want to. I mean, it's hot, cold, or it's ideal. Uh, uh, <laughs> there is no neutral in the Christian walk. It's not enough to not do something. And Baptists are famous for that, aren't they? Well, I would never do blah, blah, blah. But you know what? I'll put it out for your consideration that Baptists are just as famous for not doing anything at all. Let me ask a question to you. We often, I've heard it said here, I've said it myself here. Well, I just wish, why don't more folks go to church? Why don't more folks go to church? I mean, look around, there aren't that many people here. This building was designed for a whole lot more people to be in. Why don't more people go to church? 
We talk about that. But let me ask you another thing. What are you doing if you're just showing up here? Are you doing anything else? Because what's the difference between not going to church? At least you're being honest if you're not going to church. If you're showing up here every Sunday and not doing anything the rest of the time, you're hypocritical. I'd rather you just stayed home and went fishing than to come in here and pretend that you're being spiritual and not do anything the rest of the week. See, there's no neutral position. We can't, we're not called to be idle. We need to be doing the right things. And I don't believe we've got a lot of time left, folks. All the more reason to put the boots to the floor and let's get this going. Did you know that only by accepting Christ do we have the power to actually pursue the right things too? We can't do the right thing until we've accepted Christ. Now having accepted Christ, and I trust that you all have, we can now do the right thing. Isn't that a privilege? By the way, we've already seen Paul give a negative. Flee from this. Do this. That's, a, that's something Paul does an awful lot. For every prohibition that Paul gives, he always gives you another positive. Don't do this, do this. Don't do that, do this. Run away from this, do this instead. That right there is something to think about, isn't it? Don't sit in neutral. Now, in today's case, Paul gives us six things to pursue. And they seem to parallel the bad things that we've looked at in verses 4 and 5. Uh, let's back up and look at verses 4 and 5. We're talking about a uh, false teacher. It says, He's proud, knowing nothing, doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. Then you come down to verse 11. He says, And thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. They seem to parallel each other. Now, I don't think we need to go into a whole lot of detail describing each and every one of these traits. They're pretty simple. Uh, but we can look at some of them briefly because we've already discussed some of them already in pretty good detail as we've gone through this book, so I'm not going to hammer them again. First one he mentions is righteousness. Now that's living out the life that is now possible through our faith in Jesus Christ that we just finished talking about. I could not be righteous until Christ came and made a move in my heart. Now that He has, I have the ability now to live in a righteous way. I ought to do that. And that's what uh, Paul describes in Philippians 1.11, where he says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God. Another one that's interesting, we've been discussing it a bit recently, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. We look at uh, godliness. We've seen it over and over and over in 1 Timothy so far, haven't we? 
godliness, godliness. You're supposed to live a life of godliness. We ought to be pursuing a life of godliness. Then he mentions uh, faith and love, which we've also taught over and over. And it's amazing to me how many times Paul puts faith and love side by side. Throughout Paul's writings, we see it, faith, love, faith, love. Sometimes the order gets mixed up, but they're always side by side. We've taught it over and over. I'm not going to beat that to death either. And then he mentions patience, which I do want to park on for just a minute. That's a Greek word, uh, huponomai. It's sometimes translated as endurance. Endurance. Uh, see, patience is the ability to endure whatever may come. Whether it's suffering or whether it's simply waiting around for God to move. Uh, let's, let's look at some other times where it's used. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. It's right next door. He says, But thou hast faithful, uh, fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions and afflictions which came upon me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. But out of them all, God, the Lord delivered me. Paul suffered a lot of things. He endured those things, and he just kept plugging. He didn't say, complain about, oh, woe was me. I just got stoned at Iconium. Yep, I got stoned at Iconium. Where am I going to go tomorrow? That, that's how Paul rolled. Uh, look at uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 2. He talks about, and the aged men, looking for characteristics in the, in the aged men, the elders in the church, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. See, these seem to be important characteristics for a Christian to have, don't they? Being patient, being able to endure. And finally, Paul mentions meekness. Back in our passage today, uh, last one in the list here, he says meekness. Uh, that's propathia in the Greek. By the way, this is the only time this specific word shows up in the whole New Testament. The only time this, this word. We see meekness other places. This is the only time Propathia shows up. You're not going to get that from just reading the King James, so I've got to point it out to you. Uh, from other Greek texts, we can tell that it, it means to have the opposite of an overbearing attitude. We all know people with an overbearing attitude, right? This is the opposite of that. Not being like that guy. Sometimes it's used to describe having a sense of empathy towards someone. That's how it's used. So meekness, we could think of it as having an empathy with someone. Isn't that interesting? It's a different word than we typically see for meekness in the New Testament. This is the only time this word's used. So with those six things that we looked at, Paul's telling Timothy to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, 
meekness. Those are just a summary of characteristics that the gospel can give to a believer through Jesus Christ. Just a summary. Paul's not trying to make a theological discourse of every single valid pursuit that we ought to follow as believers. That's not what he's trying to do here. These six, Timothy, they're, they're a good start. Uh, if you follow those six, it ought to keep you busy for a little while, I think. When you get them, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. When you get those six mastered, come back and I'll give you some more. All right? I think those six can keep us busy for quite a while. They certainly give me enough to work on. Then, But Paul's not done giving commands here. He says, fight the good fight of faith, verse 12. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. So we've seen what Timothy is supposed to flee, and we've seen what he's supposed to pursue, those six details that we just looked at. Now Paul tells him to fight and to lay hold. We're going to discuss this good fight of faith in detail when we get to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Let's look at it right now, but I'm not going to steal my own thunder, all right? We're just going to take a quick glance and pretend we didn't see it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Paul talking to Timothy, given his very last words. These could be some of the last words Paul wrote. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Paul talking about that in his own life. As I say, I'm going to talk about that more when we get there. I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But we ought to understand that for young Timothy, the greatest service and the greatest fights of his life very likely are still ahead of him. Timothy's probably in his mid-30s at this point. The greatest fights of his life are probably still ahead of him. Paul writes it at the end of his life. He's just about to be executed. And... Uh, Paul says, I've done it. I've fought the good fight. My fight is over. I've done a good job. And he was confident of that. Now, the Greek word for fight here is agonizimai. You probably know the first part of that, don't you? Agony, right? You recognized it immediately. Agony, agon. It's a noun. It describes competition fighting. Competition fighting. Uh, I, immediately when I think of competition fighting, I think of heavyweight boxing. I like to watch heavyweight boxing fights. Uh, I haven't watched any in a long time, but I like to watch them. Anyway, this is, this is like a heavyweight boxing match. Jesus used it to describe, the same term used it to describe fighting for his kingdom in John chapter 18. Let's, let's look at that briefly. See how Jesus used this very word. John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus talking before Pilate. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants agonizimai, that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. 
Jesus was expecting his followers, if, if his kingdom were of this earth, Jesus would have expected his followers to go toe-to-toe and take down the Romans just like a heavyweight boxer. They're going to plug their way through. And, but I'm not of this world, Jesus said. That's not what they're fighting for. So what Paul's putting this into perspective, what Paul's telling Timothy to be ready for, fight the good fight, agonizomai, the good fight of faith, a heavyweight boxing match, you're in a life or death struggle, Timothy. A life or death struggle, and you're about to face tougher things than you've ever faced in your life, Timothy. It doesn't sound like going to church and sitting in a pew, does it? doesn't sound like that kind of Christian at all to me. Life or death struggle. The stakes are high for this faith. The stakes are the faith and the the doctrine that Timothy is entrusted to pass along. We saw that right at the beginning of the book. Paul left Timothy at Ephesus to pass along this faith and doctrine. And you're going to have to fight as you do it, Timothy. He's told to hold on. Lay hold on eternal life. Now, as I've discussed over and over and over again, when Paul's referring to eternal life, he doesn't just mean life in the future. We tend to think, oh, eternal life, we think of heaven and one day by and by. That's not what he's talking about. When Paul's talking about eternal life, that's included, but what he's really talking about is a full and complete life here and now. That's what he's really talking about. See, that's what Timothy is to take hold of. The Greek word is epilebu, and that's a wrestling term. I've already given you agonizomai, which is a heavyweight boxing term. You like wrestling? This is a wrestling term, epilebu. It means like putting something into a headlock. It's not getting away. In the Greek translation of the New Testament, or in a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the term that was used for Jacob wrestling epilebu with God. Remember, he when he was, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but Jacob was wrestling with God, and it said he, he hung on to him till the dawn. He put him in a headlock and was wrestling with him till dawn. That's what we're talking about. Lay hold of the eternal life, that full life that we can have right here, right now. The idea, again, is tenaciously struggling for something. Lay hold of it. It doesn't sound like sitting in a pew. So with these two pictures... Paul's calling for Timothy to live a life that's radically different than the lackadaisical way that the world around him lives. I don't have to look too far. This this is Memorial Day weekend. It's barbecue day. It's official national barbecue day. Uh, And that's what people are doing. They're out, they're mowing their lawn, they're having a barbecue, they're going fishing, things like that. It's beautiful weather. I can't blame you for wanting to do that. I'll probably do some of that myself this weekend. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But we hadn't ought to be living that kind of a lackadaisical way, should we? We ought to be tenaciously struggling toward a higher end. What are we called to, folks? We're called to share the gospel. We're not called to sit around doing nothing. This is what we're called to do. This is what Christianity is all about. This is not, Paul's not calling Timothy to something that's for extra special Christians. This is for you and me. This is for every single believer to follow. But why? Why should we even bother? Why bother doing this? Why bother the struggle? Agonizomai. Why, why all that? Well, Paul gives us the answer. Whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Our lives are lived out before many witnesses. That's why. Now, in this context here, I don't believe that it's referring to the unbelieving world around us, which is watching our lives. That's how a lot of preachers will preach it. We should fight the good fight of faith. We should struggle. We should do this because the world is watching you. I don't think that's the case. The world is watching us, yes, and that ought to be some inspiration. Uh, It is true, and it ought to be a major consideration as we go about our lives. Make sure you're living the right way because the world is watching you. But in this particular case, I believe that it's referring to our not being ashamed before all the other hosts of saints who have gone on before us. I can't help but think of those ten guys that I just watched executed in Egypt. Egypt is an ally of the United States, you realize. They're one of our only allies in the uh, Middle East. And they're executing Christians every day. Why do we sit silent? We had not to be ashamed before the host of saints that have gone on before us, who are in the grandstands watching our heavyweight boxing match. You and I are in the ring right now. You and I are in the ring in a heavyweight boxing match, and all the saints that have gone on for the last 2,000 years before us are watching it. Isn't that something to think about? Don't shame yourself. By the way, if you think this is, I'm making all this up, this is the exact same language that's in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Hebrews, all right, let's look at it. I'm getting a blank look. Let's look to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, and we all know what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. It's the hall of faith, all those believers who have gone on before us. Seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Charlie, what else is going on this afternoon? Indianapolis 500, right? A lot of people are going to be in the grandstands watching a race there. You and I are in a race today. 
You and I are in a race, and people are watching us. Fight like a real contender. That's what Paul's saying. Fight like a real contender. Don't fight like some limp-wristed loser that's going to get the stuffing beat out of him as soon as he walks into the ring. We've got to take this seriously. Brother Fisher, could I have you close us in a word of prayer here this morning? Oh, Lord.